I want to talk this morning about conversion, in fact a very, very well-known conversion, because in a sense no encounter with Jesus Christ, and remember we're having a series of sermons about encountering the risen Jesus in these weeks following Easter, no encounter with Jesus Christ has affected the nature of Christian belief more than when Saul of Tarsus, a Jew by birth, a Roman by nurture, and a Greek by culture, meets the risen Jesus on a dusty, well-traveled highway, the road to Damascus. Even today, people, whether they're Christian or not, talk about life-changing experiences as my Damascus road experience. And my sermon today poses three questions, and you'll know it's quite unusual for me to fall into a three-card trick. But three questions. First, Paul, what kind of person were you? Second, Paul, what happened to you? And thirdly, Paul, what happened to you after that? It's a kind of before, during, and after series of snapshots. And if you are going to follow this sermon and you've got a Bible handy, and some of you will and some of you won't, we've got clearly the passage in Acts, which Elizabeth read for us, but if you do want to uh, be uh, really engaged, turn to Philippians chapter 3 and just have that open in front of you as I cross-refer to it on a number of occasions and particularly to the middle of the passage where Paul starts saying in verse five things like this, if anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Verse seven, yet whatever gains I had, these I come to regard of loss because of Christ. And verse 10, where we'll be getting near, near the end, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So have your finger open in those kind of verses. Well, number one, Paul, what kind of person were you? And I think that Paul might say to us, well, I'm many things, but I was a man I see now looking back under conviction. Why? Well, I think he gives us clues that the witness of Stephen, the first martyr recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, plays on his mind. If you read in Acts 22.20, it says this, and while the blood of your witness Stephen was shed, this is Paul speaking this in Acts, and while the blood of your witness Stephen was shed, I myself was standing by approving and keeping the coats of those who killed him. That preys on his mind. Because you see, Witness matters. Suffering for Christ's sake matters. Bearing testimony to God's goodness in occasions where it's received and sometimes where it's quite hostile matters. It's called martyria from which we get the word martyrs. Life laid down even to death for the faith What was it Tertullian, that great North African early church leader, said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. My Sunday school teacher was called Mr. Bell. 
A kindly old man, I think I've referred to him already since I've been here, I think I made his life hell. Well, not me on my own, but me and possibly another four or five, eight, nine, ten-year-olds. He was a diligent, gracious old Methodist. And several years later, when I became a Christian, in September 1972, September the 10th, it's a Friday, go look on Google, in the early hours of the morning, in a nightclub in West Yorkshire, and I keep telling you I'll tell you about that sometime, and I may or I may not. I felt after I'd become a Christian in a rather vibrant way that well, the first thing I ought to do was go find Mr. Bell. I knew which church he'd gone to because I knew which church I'd gone to as a young boy before ditching the whole thing until that night in 1972. And I went and I actually tracked down the church and lo and behold, Mr. Bell had died four or five months earlier. Often the one who bears witness to Christ doesn't know its effect. But that doesn't mean it has no effect. You who bear witness to your children and your grandchildren who speak, I hope graciously, but nevertheless speak to your neighbors and workmates, you may never know the effect a word of affirmation, a word from the Lord has upon those people. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have an effect. Stephen the martyr probably never knew he had any effect at all on Saul of Tarsus. But he did. So take heart and keep faith with the faith. Because as we live out our lives in word and deed, you never quite know the effect you're having upon other people for Christ. Secondly, when we say to Paul, what kind of person were you, Paul? I think he'd say to us, well, I was a good Jew and I'm proud of it. And that's how he describes himself in that third chapter of Philippians, verses four to six. If anyone has else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more, he wrote. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Modesty was not one of Saul of Tarsus' great gifts. But clearly he regards himself as a good Jew. He's knowledgeable, moral, zealous, faithful, sincere. He's a man who has lived his life seeking to please God as he understands living his life to please God might be. I labor the point this morning that Paul was a good Jew and a good man because in an attempt to dramatize our conversions to Christianity, some Christians often beef up their sinfulness. And I understand why they do that. What a sinner I was. I did this. I beat up my wife. I went to jail. I went to this. And then I became a Christian. And we all say, wow. And we're right to say, wow, because Christ can turn every person's life around. But inadvertently, 
What we do is we signal that actually salvation and having your life turned around is really only for the big sinners. Christ only really calls people when you've been a murderer or a rapist and done some terrible things. And then we can demonstrate the saving power and the extent of the saving power of God. But what we do then is that we inadvertently make it harder to convince ourselves and other people that knowledgeable, moral, zealous, faithful, sincere people who claim genuinely to live a life pleasing of God as they understand it need to meet Jesus Christ. An encounter with Jesus Christ, such as Saul has on this road to Damascus, is not only required for big big sinners, but it's required for every knowledgeable, moral, zealous, faithful, sincere person like most of us. I remember that great one-liner from C.S. Lewis. What God requires, he wrote, is not just nice people, but new people. So to a second question, okay, Paul, what happened to you? And I think he would say this, and it's a very simple answer of three words. I met Jesus. Paul very rarely uses the word that we translate conversion. That word beloved of evangelical preachers, metanoia or metanoien which means, and you've had it explained to you if you're a good sermon taster down the years, you know it backwards. It means a change of heart and mind and direction where you turn yourself around. It's a great word, but it's not used by Paul. Instead, Paul describes his Damascus Road experience in Greek as the occasion where Jesus appeared me. You see, meeting Jesus Christ is the quintessential Christian experience for every human soul. I, I used to be a Boy Scout. Yeah, don't laugh. You said you wouldn't laugh, Daniela. I used to be a Boy Scout. I loved it. Uh, and I lived in Otley in West Yorkshire, and that had Danefield Woods about two miles up the outs- uh, uh, on the outskirts of Otley, which was used for the whole of the Yorkshire District Scouting Association for their camps and their camping competition. And it was on our backyard, and uh, we went camping. I think I went camping probably every three weeks between the age of about nine and the age of about 17. In fact, now I look back, it's possibly because of that association with the Scouts in a Methodist church hall that that's where I naturally went when I was in the nightclub. Anyway, that's by the by. We used to have competitions between the troops in Yorkshire, and it was at Danefield Woods. And I remember one test in one camp in particular because it scorched upon my soul. We were taken to the top of a hill where there was a large barrel of water and then umpteen sort of other smaller receptacles like uh, sort of milk, uh, you know, two-litre milk cartons and five-litre paint cans and stuff like this. 
And uh, there was a small wooden platform about this wide and this long, and a rope ran through it with hooks under, and the rope disappeared down the side of the hill. You've got to imagine this. I'm doing my best. Right, says the scout leader as we all gather round. Now this project, he said, is simple. Get as much water as you can onto this platform, take it down that ravine, and the troop which has the most water left at the other end, we measure it, they win. Easy. And if I say so myself, we were brilliant. We got the largest containers and filled them from the barrel and we put them on this wooden thing and we filled almost every square inch we could. And then we set off down the hill and I remember distinctly at one point lying with my back in a puddle with my hands up trying to make sure that nothing dropped while my other colleagues held it absolutely straight. It took us ages but we got the 150 yards down and we got to the bottom of the hill and I remember thinking to ourselves, we've done this brilliantly. Hardly a drop was filled and we were clapping one another on our back and sort of upbeat and the scouter at the bottom sort of took the things off and he poured them into this big receptacle where they had sort of markers of different troops and where they'd gone and we stood back waiting for us to be at the top. Well, we got nine litres down the hill and we did beat a couple of other troops, especially first Ilkley, who are our sworn enemies, but one troop got 26 litres. And our bubble burst instantly. In fact, we got a bit cross. They must have cheated, we said. Did they go down the hill three times? How did they do it? And the bit that scorched on my soul was the reply of the supercilious scout leader who just said this to us. The large barrel, remember that, that you used to fill all the small barrels, they just picked that up and brought it down. You see, what we'd done was excellent within our own rules. But by the possible rules, we came nowhere. This is Paul's experience. Within the rules of his Jewish context, he is perfect. But he comes to a point in his life where he realizes this is the wrong context. Paul, the good Jew, suddenly realizes one startling, awful truth. On the road, Going to Damascus on meeting Jesus Christ, I've got everything wrong. In Philippians, he continues, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. He declares, in effect, my whole life is based and focused on a mistaken understanding of how you are obedient and pleasing to God. 
The things I thought were valuable are actually worthless. The things I thought were significant aren't very significant at all. The things I thought were worth living for are the wrong things. It's like someone's gone in a shop overnight and changed all the price tags. So you see, to talk of a moral conversion as if Paul was somehow deeply immoral and then becomes moral because he meets Jesus is to miss the point. To talk about Paul simply changing allegiances like a midlife crisis is missing the point. It's more like Bill Shankly's famous comment. Emmanuel, you'll like this. It's about Liverpool. It's more like Bill Shankly's famous comment. Football's not a matter of life and death, he said. It's far more important than that. Because what happens to Paul on the road to Damascus is more important than that. To change the image, it's as if Paul now has a new magnetic north to which everything's drawn. And because magnetic north changes his life, where south and east and west are, all change too. He has changed direction. This good Moral, brave man finds that his life has fundamentally changed direction. A Christian is a person who has ceased to do what they want to do and has begun to do what Jesus Christ wants them to do. And that's what Paul starts to do this day. We don't need to be a big sinner to qualify. If you regard yourself as knowledgeable, moral, zealous, faithful, sincere, well, to you I say, encountering Jesus Christ is for you. Third question. Paul, what happened to you after that then? And I'll leave the wonderful story of Ananias till the next time I preach on this passage because Ananias is one of the great unsung heroes of the New Testament. But I think Paul would say to us, Paul, what happened to you after that? He would say to us, after I met Jesus, I continued to follow Jesus. Paul kept going in his faith. His Damascus Road experience was the beginning, it wasn't the end. In fact, it's interesting to, to comment and to think that Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, who wrote umpteen letters in the New Testament and founded churches and traveled here, there, and everywhere as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, does not emerge as a figure in the history of the early church until about a decade after this Damascus Road experience. He disappears off the scene for many years. He doesn't have this Damascus Road experience on a Tuesday and then write the letter to the Galatians a week on Friday. The difference would be that he had his Damascus Road experience when we had the Jubilee 2000 celebrations and Galatians was written this year. And during all that time, we don't know what happened to Paul. 
I often wonder where he was, who ministered to him, which enabled Saul to truly become Paul the Apostle because whichever church and whichever fellowship and whichever Battersea house group he went to, wherever it was, they did a darn good job with him. That's why you attend fellowships and house groups and Bible studies in church so that Saul's can become Paul's. But out of the many facets I would focus upon, I want you to note just one thing. That whenever Luke, the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, talks about the Damascus Road experience of Paul, and he does it three times in Luke, in the Acts, and you can always tell when Luke thinks something is really, really important because he tells you about it more than once. So in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, we hear of the Damascus Road. In chapter 22, we hear of the Damascus Road. And in chapter 26, we hear of the Damascus Road. But each time Luke tells this story of how Saul met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, the story gets longer and there's more to say. These accounts of Paul's life are like snapshots in a spiritual journey of maturity. What does your spiritual maturing album look like? It's said you can count the pips in an apple, but you can't count the apples in a pip. And lots of people meet Jesus Christ down their own Damascus roads and then there ain't much to tell. And there ain't much to grow. In his wonderful book on St. Paul, the former Roman Catholic Carlo Cardinale, try and get the book, it's as rare as hen's teeth now, but if you can find it, read it. Has Paul awaiting execution by the Romans in a prison cell and reflecting back on his life. And he puts in the words of Paul, I suppose that only when you are at the point of your death do you know the true meaning of your conversion. So in Philippians 3, after laying out what kind of Jew he is and seeing how he realized that it's all wrong, a mature Paul makes probably one of the most amazing personal statements in the whole of the New Testament. It's in Philippians 3 verses 10 and 11. He writes this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Is it still said of us, a short while, umpteen years, several decades, after whatever relates to our own road to Damascus, that we want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection? Is Jesus Christ still the object of our zeal or a historic monument that lurks back there? So we pray.
We pray this morning, Lord, that whoever we are and whatever our Christian experience and the length and the duration of it, that you will so work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we can say with integrity and confidence that we want to know him and the power of his resurrection that by any means possible we may attain the resurrection from the dead and be his servants yesterday, today and tomorrow. Amen.